Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune, back with a returning guest on for an uh, interview, discussion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Lewis from his channel, Smell Gold. Uh, Lewis, how are you doing today? Doing grand. How you doing, Matt? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, it's it's good. I'm sure many of my my viewers will notice that I haven't had too many guests on as of late. Uh, so it's nice to have somebody on again. Uh, so I'm sure it's nice for my viewers as well, so they don't just listen to me uh, drone on end endlessly. Uh, but but I think we have a ton of great things to talk about in the silver and gold realm, as as well as you know elsewhere out there. And I want to start off by asking you about you know, this relatively recent uh, price drop in, in silver and gold. Now, you know, as we're recording this Friday morning, we're seeing a bit of a recovery on some some really poor jobs numbers uh, from the United States. But but as a whole, you know, gold looked like it was, uh, you know, pretty close to its its key resistance level, uh, 1350, 1360, around that level uh, where it's been denied a couple times in, in past years. Uh, silver was above $16, and then in a blink of an eye, uh, despite circumstances around the world, despite circumstances at the Fed, we saw gold lose its 1300 number, which is a pretty key number as well. And silver, you know, drop actually for, for a brief period of time below $15 an ounce. So uh, maybe you could share your thoughts on why that's the case. And, and is this, you know, is this the end of the rally or is this a fake out or kind of what's your take on that? It's hard to say. You know, the, 50, the 1350 level for gold has been approached, I think, four or five times since 2013 or 14. I saw a chart from uh, Mr. Rubino over at uh, Dollar Collapse. And it's true, it hits that level and then it bounces back off. Uh, I thought this time it was gonna go through it, break that glass ceiling, but it didn't. Silver had started to fall before gold fell, which maybe was a canary in the coal mine. As you mentioned, uh, silver almost got did lose its 15 handle for a few hours, uh, but it lost its $16 handle much quicker than gold lost its uh, 1300 And it looks like gold is back almost to uh, 1300 I think it's at 1296 at the moment. It's very hard to say other than it's you can draw inferences when you see gold bouncing off of that 1350 as if it's strong resistance. Now, that's either chart trading, which we do know that a lot of gold investors and silver investors aren't really gold and silver investors, they are traders. The bulk of the gold and silver that trades hands is in the form of contracts, so they're really just trading price. And it could be that it's that's just how the, the charts come out and that's what happens, or it could be a combination of that and some type of manipulation, which we know happens in all markets. And so I would imagine it's it's a combination of that and that the main drivers of the gold and silver markets, unfortunately, appear to be how they trade on these markets, on the COMEX and LBMA. Well, the LBMA is more of a 
over-the-counter market, but that also means that they trade off of the COMEX price and they trade and their large purchases don't impact what's happened because they don't show up as a trade on the uh, the, the price-setting mechanism of the COMEX. So it's hard to say. I would have thought that it would have broken through, but then the other three or four times we might have thought that the gold would have broken through. And my view is once gold breaks through, and if it breaks through because of monetary issues, concerns about the economy, interest rates, inflation, geopolitical, whatever it is, if it, if it sustains a rally, we see then silver follows it as a cheaper substitute for, for gold. But we haven't we haven't seen it since 2011. Yeah. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting that you bring up uh, gold bouncing off that 1350 level. In fact, you know, besides its dip in, in late 2015, early 2016, you know, it's also found a bottom around 1130, 1100. So I, I wouldn't say it's a tight range by any means, but it certainly seems to be kind of range bound going back to, uh, again, you know, 2013, 2014. And it's, it's kind of, an, you know, as you were talking about this, it, the, the thought came to my mind, how come more people aren't here in this community, in this uh, space, talking about a potential U.S. dollar peg of the gold. And I'm not being serious that that actually exists. But, you know, there, you know, if I take you back like nine months ago, you know, that was a big story that the yuan gold peg, which I talked about. And, and I don't think it was a peg. I think, if anything, it was just a, a correlation that traders uh, followed for a while, became a self-fulfilling prophecy for a little while there. It, it happens in... U.S. dollar terms, obviously, it happens in, in the euro, it's happened in the yen in the past, and it just happened to be the yuan there. Um, but, you know, that thought kind of came to mind. It, it's it's a relatively narrow range that gold has been in for, you know, something like five years now. How come we're not hearing about this gold, uh, uh, this this dollar uh, to gold peg um, here in this space? I don't know, just an interesting observation. Well, the, the dollar index has really gone up since the end of QE, since the end of 2013-14. And while they say that gold is the anti-dollar, uh, in a sense, they're both the, now the safe haven that people follow. So look what happened yesterday. It was very interesting when the ECB comes out and basically says, yeah, or we've done $5.5 worth of QE, but that's not enough. So we're going to continue that well beyond when we ever even think about raising rates again, and now nah, we're not going to raise rates. We're going to leave them where they are, too. Now, that, of course, damages the euro and boosts the dollar index because the euro is 58% of the dollar index. So the dollar goes up. Now, you would have thought that this reckless monetary policy, which impacts the entire eurozone, which is an economic zone larger than the United States, that that would have sent gold and silver higher. But instead, it sent the dollar higher, which meant that the dollar and gold, gold barely moved yesterday. It should have gone up, in my opinion, uh, but it didn't. It went down because the dollar strengthened more as a result of the ECB's move than gold and silver did. Now, we're seeing a bit of a, a delayed impact today where silver now is up almost 2% and gold up 1%. But sometimes we see that in the gold and silver markets is when news comes out during the day that should move it, that particular day it doesn't, but then it plays a bit of catch up the next day. And we're seeing a bit of a pullback in the U.S. dollar index. Maybe it was overbought yesterday, and then maybe people didn't catch on to the idea that this is a positive 
uh, note for gold and silver that the ECB's monetary policy is loose and reckless as ever. And then, of course, today we saw, as you mentioned, the, the very low jobs report, 20,000, which would give further indication that the Fed's probably not going to get uh, too aggressive with its monetary policy. And they, at some point, may also start chasing the ECB down the, the, the race to the bottom of reckless monetary policy. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring up, you know, the ECB that that was uh, a bit of unexpected dovishness from from them and, and Mario Draghi, uh, at least by some. And and, you know, it, it makes me wonder at what point see, see what we've been seeing is, you know, this dollar strength that that occurs as a result of of ECB easing or, or worries about uh, European growth or, or if, you know, whatever the story is for the day, Japanese growth or Chinese growth or whatever. And, and we see the dollar as well as, you know, sometimes U.S. bonds or even the U.S. stock market bid as a bit of a safe haven. But, but you know, what's that threshold where what's going on in Germany or France or Italy or the U.K. or China or Japan or South Korea? You know, what's the threshold for for traders here in the United States to realize that, well, we're not insulated from that anymore, right? What used to be a safe haven bid to a, you know, safer assets uh, stateside is is no longer a good buy because what's going on in Germany, what's going on in China in particular, um, has some real influence on, on the U.S. economy that we're no longer in the driver's seat, that, that we can't somehow continue to, to eke out, you know, decent economic growth quarter after quarter with the rest of the world seemingly moving towards, uh, you know, stagflation or recession or whatever you want to call it. You know, I, I wonder what that day of reckoning is going to look like um, when, when, well, yeah. That, that's only one component of the dollar's either strength or weakness, though. And that's right. That would have the impact of weakening the dollar. But what a lot of people miss is that Unlike gold, there's actual extreme use, demand, and need for the dollar. Now, you say, why would you want the dollar? Well, most of the emerging markets, including China, use the dollar to denominate their debt, and they have to pay back their debt in dollars. And then when their currencies depreciate, they're in a bind because they have to buy more dollars. And then most countries hold dollars in reserve. Despite whatever economic tr troubles the United States may have, there is that because it's the reserve currency and because it has a life of its own as the most liquid and deep currency market and uh, treasury market, that there's that demand irrespective of how weak the U.S. economy may get as a result of anything that happens externally. But then you remember, if all countries have bad economies, that doesn't really harm the dollar either because which country is going to, remember, they're all relative to each other. If the United States economy goes into a funk and EU and Japan and China and the rest of the world, they're still relative to each other. And then you still have that issue where there's demand for the dollar. That's probably good for gold because then you can say, well, wait a minute. The gold is a better value because it doesn't have all this weakness, counterparty risk and so on. But the main thing, the reason the dollar still holds up is that when people buy gold, they buy it to store which is good, you hold on to it, and then they sell it in an emergency like Venezuela. But the dollar has the value because it's used day to day to settle all types of accounts, and gold is not. And, and that's why you don't see gold taking off more than you do. It's, it's used as a store of value rather than as even as an international currency. So when the central banks buy it, they're not buying it so they can trade it. 
They're not even buying it so they can back their currencies. They're buying it to have as an asset that they know is solid in addition to whatever else they think they have on their balance sheet like U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. So I, I, I completely agree about the U.S. dollar that, you know, on, it seems like uh, month after month, year after year, we, uh, uh, not just you and I, but just in general, we're having the same conversation of, yeah, you know, despite where the Fed is ultimately heading, the dollar still kind of looks like the, you know, the cleanest shirt in the pile of dirty laundry that that that's still the case. Now, now well, it I, does have positive interest rate. Think about that. It, you know, you're absolutely right. You're right. I mean, the ECB is at zero. The Bank of Japan is, is are they at zero or that negative? So they're negative. Negative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 the Fed, you got to give them some credit, I guess. You know, with with the cover of Trump tax cuts or or whatever you want to say they used, um, they were able to to eke out a, a bit of a tightening cycle here, which you know I, I think is, I don't know, I. I I don't want to say Many it's people over, said but... they couldn't do it. They said they couldn't do it. They said they could never raise rates, even a quarter point. They've managed nine rate heights, and they've managed some balance sheet reduction. So they appear to be more prudent than the other central banks, and that does underpin dollar strength, whereas it looks like the United States doesn't need monetary accommodation for its economy. And the other, I mean, China has printed 60% of the world's debt in the last five years. They clearly need the debt. Uh, Japan needs it. ECB's admitted they're going to continue to buy bonds. And the United States is acting like, oh, we don't need that anymore. No, it's not necessarily true. They're taking a breather. They're living off of the fumes of the last $4 trillion. But still, as far as fiat currencies go, the central bank, the, the Fed, is the most prudent bank right now. And they designed it that way. You know, when they ended QE, that Stanley Fisher, vice chair of the Fed, called up Mario Draghi and said, hey, you got to do this QE stuff. They had never done that before. And now they've been doing it for five years. Japan started their QE the day the U.S. stopped theirs, their most recent round. And then China's been doing it for 10 years. So that does make the dollar appear to be stronger versus other currencies. But again, not stronger versus gold. The only reason the dollar stronger versus gold is there's a greater demand for dollars than there is for gold. That's the only reason. Sure. Otherwise, gold, as Greenspan says, is the superior currency that no fiat currency can match. Because it, it just is. It doesn't owe anything. It doesn't rely on, on monetary policy, fiscal policy. It can't default. It clearly is the superior currency, but people don't, countries and people don't use it, and that's what reduces its demand. Sure. You know, I, I think when, when we look back, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, this uh, this tightening period, which is now in its uh, I think it's it's been over three years now that since uh, Janet Yellen's first rate hike in, in December of 2015, you know I think this is going to be something that that we see as kind of a, a an aberration I guess in this whole race to the bottom that we're talking about. And I think this is this is something I talk about a lot on my channel. This idea of of the dollar collapse or or, or a massive devaluation of the dollar, whatever you want to call it, as as being kind of the the case for why to get silver and gold that. There's more to it than that, that that it's not just the dollar, that it's a lot of these other fiat currencies. And if anything, as we're saying, you know, maybe the dollar is in the best position. If, if you're looking at the euro uh, or the yuan and, and the case of, of, of China and, and their massive debt growth, um, I uh, it could be in a worse position. And that's by no means a, a, a an endorsement for the dollar <laughs> or anything, but uh, it could be in worse position. I mean, again, looking at the euro, uh, looking at the yen and, and, and Japan's... Uh, really uh, 
unenviable position in terms of the central banking policy. But, you know, you bring up something really interesting there, talking about China and their their massive debt creation over the last five years. And even just in the last you know month or two, they they've uh, allowed a massive amount of, of credit creation within their own country, uh, seemingly with with the uh, intention of, of stimulating economic growth. It's a bit of a reversal from, I'd say, about a year, year and a half's worth of, of policy of deleveraging to some extent. Uh, That's relative what they said they wanted to do. They wanted it, to deleverage. Yes. Yeah. And, and and now they're coming out with, with a, a seemingly back to, to the old China that we, we knew for, for, you know, eight years there or something like that. And yet, you know, I, I think many traders, many analysts are expecting that stimulus to have the same effect that it did back in. I don't know, 2016 or 2015, I forget which year, they also had a large amount of stimulus. Um, and, and yet we're, we're not quite seeing that yet. And then even from uh, the ECB uh, yesterday, they, they came out and, and they announced this uh, policy that would be seen as, as easing or a dovish tilt. And European stocks, US stocks didn't rally on that news. They, they actually went down. So, you know, are we kind of reaching this point of, you know, diminishing returns are, are those returns very limited at this point in terms of, of you know, central bank policy? Are, are they going to have to resort to, well, more QE, more interest rate cuts to to kind of elicit the same response that they've received in the past? Or, you know, is this just am I overthinking this? No, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what China wanted to do. They thought that they remember the idea of escape velocity. That's what the Fed says that they could do. You can print the money and then stop and then hope everything turns out all right. Now, normally, when you bring demand forward, because it's exactly what you do, when you borrow mm -hmm. money to build stuff that no one needs right now, the idea is, well, they'll eventually move into it. But what China's done is kick the can down the road so far by building all of these bridges to nowhere, uh, cities that no one lives in, and so on, that you've borrowed money to build those things, but there's no return on them. And at some point, you get to this, you say, okay, well, borrowing money, is, we can't do that anymore because we haven't grown into what we borrowed the money for, and we now owe the money on those projects that aren't revenue generating because no one's paying rent, no one's paying tolls on the, on the bridges. So what do we do? Well, and that's normally what happens. You would say, okay, well, we're just going to have to have a recession and allow the economy to absorb all this excess consumption, overbuilding, and so on. But what China realized, they can't do that because then people lose their jobs. They've moved 350 million people from the cities into uh, from the from the country into these cities. Some uh, and and they've given them jobs. What are they going to do? Say, so, oh, we're not going to print any more money. We're not going to borrow any more money. No way. What they do is they tell. The, the state-owned banks that lent money to these state-owned companies that built these things to lend them more money, to extend the loans, or to build more, and just to keep it going. And, you know, where that ends eventually, but the question is, if they have an endless printing press, they can keep printing and buying. And the reason that China wasn't able to pull it off, not that they probably could have stopped and deleveraged, was the tariffs. But what the tariffs did was, in their centrally planned economy, they realized that, oh, we're not going to be able to sell $500 billion worth of products into the United States. Where's that money going to be made up from? So they had to subsidize the manufacturers of those products. They had to find other, give them tax incentives, whatever it was. And now they realize 
we can't count on that. So what are we going to do? They turned around. They said, well, we'll do more stimulus. Now they're going to build more high-speed rails. They're going to build what they call localized uh, infrastructure, like parking lots and so on. So they know that the way – when the government's in charge of the economy, they have to – instead of like in a free market where demand, free market demand drives the investment, the central bank or the central planners of China, they decide where they're going to put the money and they issue their state-owned banks directives to tell the state-owned companies what to do. And what they were trying to do is get away from construction and real estate. But that's the trick that they know works. They were going to try to move into services, try to move into more domestic consumption but they can't do that if the economy is going into recession. They need to keep the workers. They're going to do the consumption busy. So they have to build more bridges, more rails, and more empty buildings. And they have to borrow money to do it. So all that's that's a problem. And, and China is just a hyper example of it. But every economy has that issue. The United States has that issue. The borrowing money, ECB has that issue. And you're right. You get diminishing returns because you're getting way out ahead of yourself and pulling demand forward. That won't ever be met, which means that the debt can't ever be repaid because you're never going to grow into the amount of debt that you issued in order to pay it back through the projects that you funded through debt. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. All these countries do uh, practice that emerging markets, the U.S., uh, EU, et cetera. It's a known way of driving your economy. It is. And yet, you know, the, 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 you know, the reason we're focusing on China is because, you know, in the last 10 years, they have been the number one driver of worldwide you know economic growth if you look at this you know quote unquote recovery since the the financial crisis it's i mean yeah us has had some decent years uh, eu is not so much i guess along the way uh i think emerging markets had a decent run there for a bit but but mostly it's been china uh, now uh the uh the interesting thing uh, about i guess this um situation that china finds itself in well first of all you know that trade war that you're talking about could not have come at the worst at a worse time now i don't know how much they saw this ahead of time both the u.s as well as the chinese administrations but you know for a while there everybody was talking about you know in late 2000 uh well most of 2018 uh, the damage that this trade war is doing to china's stock market or the economy and, and the problem with it is that i mean yes there was that component but there's also this deleveraging that predated you know that the beginning of, of the trump tariffs and whatnot and and the tariffs kind of just uh, added insult to injury of what was already going on with in china but you know the interesting thing about china is as we're talking about they have a massive debt bubble um seemingly an unsustainable one they're they're in this world of, of diminishing returns right not unlike the united states not unlike the ecp not unlike japan and yet what's really fascinating about this is that within this you know uh, i'll call it the alternative media or the alternative financial media community there's still a lot of people are very split on it right if, if you talk about the united states if you talk about the eu and you say what's the future of this currency what's the future of this economy over the next five years or ten years people will say well, it's it's in a terrible position, very precarious position. I can't tell you when, but eventually it's going to uh, end very badly because of these excesses of debt, because, of, as you said, bringing forward demand, bringing forward economic growth. Eventually, there's going to be a price to pay for that. And yet with China, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply people say that somehow they're different and I get it. They have a, maybe a different, uh, a more centrally run economy and whatnot, but I, 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 I just come to the same conclusion in many ways. It's going to be different maybe to some extent than the U S or the EU, but I come to the same conclusion that you can't keep bringing forward this demand, uh, you know, indefinitely and, and, uh, not have a price to pay for that. Right. That the, the old you, phrase, you do, pay, you do pay a price. What was the phrase? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, there, there, uh, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? That was a big right. uh, libertarian thing back in the day. Right. Well, here's here's why. If you and I did that, obviously, you run up your credit card and you live large for a year, two years. Yes, eventually they cut you off. Same thing even with if Apple were just to decide free lunch for everybody, free everything, free health care, free education. Everyone makes $300,000. They could do it. They can borrow more money and borrow more money. And eventually, even Apple would run through its cash hoard by doing that and would then start having debt in excess of their revenues. And they go out of business. The difference is that when you have it at the sovereign level, especially with China running it all, uh, they really can't go out of business. All that can happen is no one wants the yuan. Well, of course, no one wants the yuan because they owe so much money, and people don't even realize it. They get blinded by the fact that they buy gold. Big deal. They buy everything. Um, that China or any country, really, if it's large enough and it's part of the integrated financial system, it's not like Moldova or something. <laughs> so the ECB, no, seriously, the ECB, Japan, China, England, United States have proven they can print as much money and issue it to each other and around the world and people are going to buy it even though you know that they can't pay it back it doesn't matter and that's why this has gone on much longer than people have thought because unlike you and i if we run up our credit card we don't just we don't call up the credit card company and make a change if we were the credit card company we can keep issuing credit to ourselves and that's the position that these sovereigns are in china just prints more money now they know that yeah, it could create inflation and create all kinds of issues. However, they know that not printing it is even worse, especially for China, because they'd be out of business. And that's why it continues to go on. And then all the other countries realize we're all in this together. We're all part of the fiat conspiracy. We're all part of the debt-based conspiracy. We all know that the entire financial system runs on this, that no one wants to pull the plug and say, uh, you know what, I don't want any part of this. And the countries that don't want any part of it or are kicked out of the system they actually suffer economically through sanctions. And well, look at Russia. You would think the ruble might be a strong currency. Why? They don't have a lot of debt. They're an oil exporter. They have an okay economy. No, no one wants the ruble. Why? Because the other countries refuse to take it. Other countries have them under sanctions. So it's, it's beyond just normal economics. It's really a, a political scheme amongst the industrialized nations, China, Japan, the United States, European Union, to a certain extent, they're not involved in currency wars. They're really involved in currency uh, maintenance in which they all maintain the concept that 
your your dollars are good, your yen are good, your yuan are good. We're all in this together to a certain extent. They may have a trade war, but the idea that they're not going to accept each other's – where are they going to go? I said, well, they'll go to gold. That would be so disruptive to the country – to all the countries that if one country just said, you know what? The heck with this debt stuff. <laughs> we're just going to go on a gold standard. Well, it wouldn't happen. Even when we were on a gold standard. It was always through cooperation and coordination. So if you look back at the classical gold standard, every country agreed to take their currency and back it by a unit of gold. Then when they went to the Bretton Woods gold standard, it was all agreed by 170 countries in New Hampshire that the dollar would be would be a dollar standard, not a gold standard, but that the dollar itself would be backed by gold. And then the foreign central banks could redeem the dollars they accumulate, bring them to the U.S. Treasury and get gold for them. It's by agreement. So it's not like one country is just going to say, screw this. A lot of people think that China's going to do that. China relies so much on debt. That's the last thing they could ever even want to do. And no country would want to do it. The only country that would want to do it would be a country that's outside the system. So, for example, Iran, Russia, Venezuela. But those countries are in a weaker position because they're not part of the debt-based system, which is counterintuitive. But they're actually weaker as a result because now they're relegated to having to trade in gold. Or you see Venezuela set up a website to accept remittances into the countries in Bitcoin and Litecoin. <laughs> that's, a sign of, that's a sign of weakness that they don't have the same credit. Credit is what runs the world. That's why you have a credit score. I'm not, I'm not saying this is the way it should be, but that's how people judge your financial health. Are you a good credit? And it's the same with countries. So why does the United States have good credit when you say they're profligate? Why would China have any credit when they just issue it willy-nilly? Well, because they're the ones who decide who has good credit and who doesn't. Now, everything you're talking about here would, to, to some extent, fly in the face of, I think, uh, an opinion that's held by many people that maybe don't research it as much as you or whatever regarding you know, the true state of the trade war of U.S., Chinese and, and Russian relations and, and this whole talk of uh, de-dollarization. So, I mean, how does that play into this? Now, now I'm not saying that they're going to back it with gold or the, the yuan or the ruble or anything like that. I'm just saying that that has been the trend uh, among uh, Russia, uh, some of these other smaller countries and to some extent China. Now, no, China is not true. China still holds over a trillion in treasuries and all of their state-owned banks issue debt dollar denominated. And even the sovereign nation of China has issued over a few billion dollars in dollar denominated debt. They would like to get out from under it. The only countries that are, quote, de-dollarizing in a big way are those that are already kicked out of the system. So they're by definition, they have to. So do, do you think that China will ever move in that direction, or do you think that they're they, they tied too closely to the system? They, they can't, because if they ever tried to use... This is the whole myth about the gold-backed yuan all this other nonsense. If you look at the last 10 years of yuan internationalization, so to speak, it's still under 2% of central bank reserves because no one wants to hold the yuan. The yuan China has capital controls. China has massive debt issues. China has far greater, less trust in their transparency of their financial reporting. They know there's issues in China. So de-dollarization, de-dollarizing into what? Euros? Well, euro, we just seen. They've got huge issues. Uh, the yuan, no way. Yuan, yuan is not even a blip on 
as an international currency. The biggest international currencies by far, obviously the United States dollar, then the euro, then you got the Japanese yen, and after that there's a little bit of Swiss franc, Canadian and Australian dollars, and, and the way way and the pound, and then then you have the Chinese yuan. Now, which of those are you going to de-dollarize into? If you think about it, it is your cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry pile or the the best looking horse in the glue factory, whatever cliche you want to use, all of these currencies are massively flawed, but the U.S. has a massive advantage over all of them in that it's what all the countries use. And the United States is a major oil, coal, natural gas exporter, as is Saudi Arabia, so you need dollars to buy that kind of stuff. The United States has the military, so you better not even think about using something else. Europe is the biggest competitor. And Europe, you know, you could you have Brexit going on. You've got problems in Italy. You've got massive debt. You have Greece all through the eurozone. So the euro is not really a big challenger to the dollar. And then, as I mentioned, after that, Japanese yen. I mean, that, that whole economy is boosted by the Bank of Japan buying all of the, the debt the country issues. Then Bank of England. Well, that's not going to get you very far with that small economy. Uh, Swiss francs, maybe as a safe haven, but that's the Swiss country itself is just a financial institution. And so where, is he, where are you going to de-dollarize into? You say gold, but gold is not a proper medium of exchange today. It's too clunky to move gold. You can put it on the blockchain, but who's, who's even thinking about doing that? Nobody. Right. Right. I get your point. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you make a great. I, only think, people, I don't think people think this through. They just look at it and they say, this is unsustainable. Everyone should be buying gold. OK. So switching gears here a bit, you know, uh, a little bit before we went on, we we're talking about the gold to silver ratio, which currently, if I could bring it up here, I think it stands probably around 84, I would guess, 85, something like yep. that. Yep. Uh, yeah, let's see, just uh, 84.7 roughly. So. Uh, historically high, uh, dating back to, you know, over the last, I'd say in the post 2000 era, uh, pretty high where it's at right now. And certainly it seems to not go a whole lot higher than 85, 86. So, you know, share a little bit of your thoughts on, on, I guess, where you think it should be, or, or I guess why maybe some people make predictions about it going to, to 10 to 1 or whatever on the basis of, you know, that's what it was when this country was founded, or I guess not 10 to 1, but, you know, some well, lower ratio. There are people talking 10 to 1. Let me give you what happened. Um, the, the reason the gold-silver ratio I view is largely irrelevant is that currently gold and silver have entirely different demand profiles. Back when the gold-silver ratio was 15 to 1, 16 to 1, was when they both were officially designated and used as money. So in 1792, they set the gold-silver ratio for bimetallic standard purposes at 16 to, 15 to 1. They raised it to 16 to 1 later on in one of the acts. Um, but ever since, and, and silver was required to make coins. So there was a massive demand. The United States in 1964 used 550 million ounces of silver just to mint coins. But they don't do that anymore. They've only minted 550 or 600 million American silver eagles in the last 31 years. In one year, they would produce, they would use 500 million ounces of silver. So silver and gold are no longer apples to apples monetary components. So when you had in let's say 1964, you're on the Bretton Woods gold standard and Silver's 
flowing freely through people's pockets. You have silver certificates. Well, it makes sense that the gold-silver ratio would be somewhat close because gold is money. Silver is money. They're both money. They're both used. 16 to 1 makes sense. But once we went – and remember, the gold price was fixed at $35 an ounce for the longest time, from 1934 to like 1974. Ever since 1974 – when we broke the gold link, and we already we broke long ago, the link to silver is money. Gold's investment profile and industrial profile and jewelry profile are much different than silver. So, for example, the investment demand for gold makes up almost half, and that includes people buying gold for investment, bullion, uh, central bank buying, and then the rest is jewelry and some industrial. Silver until recently, in 2005, the investment demand profile for silver is only 5%. The rest was 70-some-odd percent industrial, and the rest was jewelry. So you had jewelry, silverware, industry, and then a little bit for investment. It was only in like 2015 when there was a big investment surge that silver made up about 20-25% of investment demand. So if you think about it, if there's a much larger demand for gold on the investment side, not just from central banks, but from individuals, companies, whoever's buying gold as an investment. And silver's investment profile is much lower, and silver is more of a commodity because of the industrial demand, then it makes sense that they don't trade close to each other on the basis of their monetary or investment demands. Now, that doesn't mean that silver can't rise and that the gold-silver ratio can't come down. So, for example, we were talking about palladium. Palladium rose has got nothing to do with its monetary value. has no monetary value. never has had any. Platinum's had a little bit. Mo but palladium's had no monetary value, nor has rhodium. But both of those have risen dramatically because of their industrial demand. That could happen to silver. The only way the gold-silver ratio would go to 16 to 1 on the apples-to-apples -apples comparison would be is if governments decided that they were going to use a gold and silver standard and have a bimetallic standard. Now, what most people are talking about, and it's still far-fetched, is a gold standard. No way would they complicate that with a gold and silver standard. In fact, there were always forces trying to boost, throw silver out of the bimetallic standard. It was always the Democrats that wanted it. It was an uh, inflationary metal. They knew they could mine more of it, and therefore, if they put it on the same scale as gold, they could uh, lower their debts. But what's happening right now is the reason the gold-silver ratio is higher is there's no reason for it to be lower. They're both not considered. And the problem that gold and silver bugs have is that they both say they're both money, period. You think that. But the monetary values that are ascribed to gold and silver by the world and the market are totally different. Gold is the safe haven metal. Gold has almost 50% of its demand for investment, where silver currently is about 11%, 12%. That tells you that silver is valued as a commodity, not as money, not as an investment. And that's why the gold-silver ratio goes higher. Now, if gold goes higher on, not jewelry demand, but on safe haven demand, goes higher on uh, financial collapse, whatever you have of safe haven, geopolitical, if gold goes higher, and we saw this in 2011, and continues to go higher, well, that would mean that the value of gold's investment side demand is rising. Well, that would also have a spillover effect into silver, because silver does have an investment 
component. I'm not saying it has no investment component, but it's much lower as a percentage of gold. Well, then people would start to think, well, silver is undervalued compared to gold, at least on the monetary or investment side. And that's what you see happen. And because silver is a small market, then silver would rise and the gold-silver ratio would come down. But since we haven't seen that big investment move on gold, uh, we're not seeing it on silver. I think the bigger chance for silver to rise, as you had mentioned, would be on some type of commodity rush or supply shortage based on some government saying we have to have X amount of solar power by this year. We have to go to electric cars and then have this big increase in silver demand like you saw in uh, palladium or rhodium. I think that's where, if you want to tie your hopes for higher silver prices, lie not on uh, silver rising because of monetary safe haven. Because if you really want that, that's what gold is for. And silver is only for that once gold gets overpriced. And we haven't seen the threat of gold being overpriced lately. Well, you know, I think you're really saying some things here that has kind of brought me to the decision not to publish this interview. No, uh, joking, of course. But uh, <laughs> no, you make some good points there. Um, well, here's the know, thing. Before, before you say anything, you have to start to think, if silver hasn't risen in 10, 11 years, why is that? Is it because you want to insist the rest of the world doesn't see things your way? Or do you want to go back and look and say, well, maybe these are some of the reasons? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up a kind of an interesting point. They're talking about, you know, the, let's say silver gets more attention for commodity rush reasons or for uh, an investment reason because it's uh, seen as undervalued versus gold or gold seen overvalued or whatever. And and you're talking there about uh, the, the amount of uh, the, the size of the market. And, and when you look at the size of the market now, I guess silver on a yearly basis in terms of, of yearly production uh, it's you know current value fifteen billion roughly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, what would you say? Well, this that's, for... that's one year's one year's production is worth yes. fifteen. Billion. Yeah. What, what's gold's roughly? One year's worth. Yeah. Well, it's thirty six hundred uh, tons. So we'd have to do you have to do thirty six hundred times. Was a ton is thirty two hundred ounces. That's eleven point five million ounces times. We'll do thirteen hundred. Uh, it looks like 1.4 trillion. Okay, so so considerably, con yeah, yeah, uh, and yet you know the the other interesting thing is is that when you look at uh, I, I don't know I guess you could use the term identifiable above ground investment you know reserves um, uh -huh. held in by by central banks by financial institutions on exchanges. Uh, and even the the harder to quantify amount of, of silver and gold that's held by you know private investors in their own possession, right? Uh, uh, you know the amount of silver. I, I don't want to say it's on par with gold on an ounce to ounce ratio, but it's uh, not a whole lot more. No, and, and, well, and give... that, that that you can identify. That's correct because what I've identified are the amounts in ETFs, the amount on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, mm -hmm. the amount that's stuffed into vaults on the COMEX exchanges. But then again, you remember, the, the real unknown, as you mentioned, I think it's massive, is the amount that is in people's houses uh, in minor amounts, uh, silverware, uh, things, things that you don't realize that does come to market when the price rises. So those are where the real stockpiles are. Someone may have a couple of coins, uh, but yes, if it's just relative rarity, but remember, relative rarity is not what necessarily determines price or value. Uh, 
Right. The example I give all the time is I've made two paintings in my life and Picasso made thousands. Well, the demand for Picasso paintings is much higher than mine. So you would think, well, my paintings are rarer than Picasso. They should be worth more. No, that's nonsense. Pal platinum is 10 times rarer, comes out of the ground 10 times less than gold, and yet gold is more expensive. So there's a demand factor. Just relative rarity isn't going to give you... So, for example, even there may be the same amount of investable gold and silver. Let's just make that assumption, which is a bit of a stretch, that's out there. Well, the demand for investable gold is much higher, as we saw. The demand for gold as an investment portion of overall gold demand is 50%. The demand for silver overall demand is only 12%. So that makes sense that they can have the same piles. If there's more demand for Picasso paintings than there are for Lewis paintings, that doesn't matter that there's a thousand Picasso paintings. There's hundreds of thousands of people who want to buy those, and there's no one that wants to buy on the extreme uh, a Lewis painting. And it's the sure. same with silver. There's not the same investment profile demand. If you look at rich people, really, really rich people, they're not going to store $20 million worth of silver. Gonna, they might buy paper contracts, but they could store in some vault in the Swiss Alps in a very small draw, twenty million dollars worth of gold. They're not gonna they're not gonna store pallets of silver. I, I don't think people understand that. Yeah, well, I guess the the point I'm making, you're you're absolutely right because I, I agree with that argument that that demand matters. You can't just look at supply or or or, or you know make those types of relative comparisons. Otherwise, I'd make a third painting. <laughs> um, but but when you when you you know a trillion dollars plus of, of gold coming out to the market each year, trillions and trillions out there uh, in 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 vaults, exchanges, etc. Uh, if yeah, th there is. But but let's say we have um, a a trillion dollars worth of of demand mm -hmm. move from other assets, uh, stocks, bonds, currencies, etc., into gold. That can yep. move the market, but but if you have, you know, a fraction of that, a twentieth of that, a, 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 a move into to the silver market, Absolutely. that's a different and you, story. And that will, and that's my point. If gold gets a bid and gold gets too expensive, absolutely, silver money will go into silver, and you'll see a spike. And that's why you see historically these spikes in silver. Nineteen eighty and two thousand eleven are classic examples where gold got like, oh, well, that's really expensive. Uh, oh, silver. Let's look at that. That's cheap and undervalued and not for long because it doesn't take much. It's the same with Bitcoin and Litecoin. Those are tiny markets, too. Someone decides, oh, look at this. It's going up and boom, it, it goes higher. That's true. But in order for that to happen, you have to have some spark, either a commodity rush in the silver or a monetary rush in the silver. And yeah. that monetary rush will be shown first in gold, not in silver. I agree. Always. Oh, you know. Talk about you to, if you're a silver, see, with people that like silver so much, they don't like to look at gold. They don't realize that unless gold moves higher, silver's going nowhere. Yeah, gold no. has to go for I, for the monetary part. Otherwise, you gotta you gotta hit your star on the commodity side. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Mexico descend into some sort of Venezuela type situation, or yeah. But uh, I, I agree. That's uh, something I've talked about for a while. That you know, talking about the ratio and people wonder, you know, how high is it going to stay high? You know, up up well, they above look at it like 80. It's impossible. Or... Like it's, oh, it can't be. It's supposed to be sixteen to one. No, it's not supposed to be sixteen to one. It was sixteen to one when government set it as sixteen to one as a perp for the purpose of the bimetallic standard. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess I uh, 
you know, the way I envision it is that, you know, with gold moving from, let's say it, it makes its move up in the next year, whatever time span we're talking about uh -huh. here, from 1300 to back to 1315, 13, 1360, uh, that level, I think we'd see the ratio drop some, but, but I'm not really looking for it to drop significantly below 80 or, or 75 until gold's north of 1400 uh, and, and moving up from there. And until we have this, unless we have some other supply situation, demand situation with, with silver, but, it's not going to be until I think gold moves north but, of 1400. But let's say gold, let's say gold goes to 2000. That's not quite a double. I would bet that silver would be $30 easily because there is, there is a component that is similar to gold. But it's not on the one-to-one -one ratio or it used to. When I say one-to-one, -one, they both were on equal footings as money in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Today, they're not. But that could change if gold gets overpriced. And those are the two times in recent history since we've gone off the gold standard, since we demonetized silver in the 60s, where you had the gold-silver ratio go to 16-to-1 uh, in 1980 and 30-to-1 in 2011. Both were times when gold rock, rocketed higher. Yeah, yeah. That's how silver gets out of the woods. Not, it's not because people are going to wake up one day and say, oh, I like silver. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be because gold is too expensive or because silver has caught a commodity bid and caused some type of uh, supply shortage. Sure. That makes total sense. I'm in which, a... which is a good bet. I, I think silver's you know, it's, it's a good bet at this price that one of those two things could happen. Right. And, and, you know, the other thing that to, to keep in mind here is that uh, even if you view silver as more of a commodity than gold or whatever, um, if, if your goal here is to preserve your wealth or whatever it is over a long investment horizon, uh, it still fills that role. It's, you know, it's not like and maybe this is a bit of a reach, but it's not like silver is going to drop to to ten dollars an ounce and stay there or something like that. That that uh, oh. it, it may not match inflation as well as gold over a ten or twenty or thirty year time span, uh, but it's still a physical commodity. There's there's going to be that demand piece to it going forward. It's Absolutely. still going to maintain its value as opposed to you know I was reading this. Uh, <laughs> I, I did a video uh, two days ago, I think it was, and I was talking about. Uh, hyperinflation and 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 silver. Some, somebody had asked, you know, silver and gold. What are they going to behave like? Are they going to outpace hyperinflation? Are they going to match it? Or and and we don't have, you know, we we have plenty of examples of hyperinflation in the last you know hundred years, uh, but never by a a major major you know currency. With the example of with with the exception of maybe if you want to consider like the ruble. Uh, a major currency post uh, uh, Soviet Union or something like that. Uh, for the most part, it's been, uh, you know, Germany in the 1920s or, or Zimbabwe or Venezuela or Brazil. And, and in those cases, uh, it's, it's going to, if the currency loses half its value, gold's going to double in that currency because it's not priced in, in, in the Brazilian real, you know, primarily, uh, or the Venezuelan Bolivar. You're looking at the price in, in the dollar. So we really have to ask ourselves, you know, if if uh, if the dollar, the 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 yen, the euro, et cetera, if they were all inflating at a rapid pace or whatever, uh, 
I think it'd be a very different situation versus if it was just Brazil or Venezuela or something. But uh, if you search uh, gold, I think it was gold during hyperinflation, the uh, very first uh, uh, example or the very first result that shows up on, on Google is an article by Barron's and, and it's titled something like, uh, don't count on gold to protect you during hyperinflation or something like that. And, and it was really faulty. Uh, That's uh, nonsense. I mean, because in hyperinflation, every physical asset goes higher and, and gold and silver definitely go higher. Well, yeah. And, and, and what was really humorous about this, this article is, so, so they talk, they give one poor example of Brazil uh, during the, from 1980 to 2000, they, they went under a, a very high inflationary period. I think it was averaging 250% over that time period. And they say that, well, when you normalize it, gold actually lost 70% of its purchasing power from 1980 to 2000. Now, somebody like you and I that is, you know, follows the gold to silver market, we would realize that gold was pretty high in 1980, uh, relatively right. speaking, and not so much in 2000. <laughs> right. and, 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 but, uh, but what was really humorous about this, and it's just like, oh my gosh. So their, their suggestion at the bottom, the end of the article was, if you want to protect yourself from you know, inflation or something like that, uh, their suggestion was to buy uh, tips, uh, was treasury inflation yeah. protected securities or something like that. Uh, and, and that was just, I don't know, because, you know, it, let's say we're in some hypothetical, let's say Venezuela uh, five years ago was, or six years ago, when it went, before this all started, let's say they were issuing their equivalent of, of tips, uh, bonds, uh, <laughs> and you bought them. Um, you'd be losing a mass amount of, of purchasing power because their official rate is nowhere near the the, the actual rate of inflation. Right. Uh, you saw you saw what uh, Buffett did the other day. Same stupid argument you see. Anytime someone wants to make a case for or against gold or silver, they cherry pick fact. He said, "Well, if you bought gold in 1940, uh, you wouldn't have made as much. You bought stocks, not realizing, or maybe he does. He doesn't care. The price of gold was set at thirty five dollars from 19." 34 to 1974. So yeah, so from 1940, 50, 60, 70, you made no money on gold because it was part of the Bretton Woods gold standard and they manipulated the price and kept it at $35. But if you started, well, if you bought it in 1971 and, and just from 71 to 1980, no way would you have done better with stocks because gold went from $35 an ounce to $800 an ounce. So you're right, you pick your periods. But that does tell you something else that... Uh, Everything is cyclical. It's not like gold always goes up or silver always goes up or stocks always go up, although they do since 1987, since they make sure that they always go up. But mm. that's the point, is that everything is cyclical. And I think people are perma-bulls or perma-bears on too many things, and they become attached to their bearish position. I see stock market bears for the last seven years saying, see, see, I'm like, see what? It's been going up. They, on a down day, they all come out of the woodwork, making it sound like they, they called it. And it's the same with when you fall in love with gold or silver or Bitcoin, whatever the asset is. And all you do is look for positive confirmation bias. And if you're against those assets, you look for negative confirmation bias. As you know, Matt, I love gold and silver, but I try to avoid everything I see is like, oh, this means gold and silver is set to skyrocket. When I see for years that they're not skyrocketing, I try to analyze why they're not. I don't comfort myself with arguments that tell me that, well, it's going to. I don't yeah. know where it's going to go, but I, I try to explain why hasn't it. And I think I've done a good job today of explaining why silver has not risen the last seven or eight years. Because you have to ask yourself, why isn't it? You can't just say, well, it's, it's going to. Well, 10 years of it not going up, you really have to reexamine 
why you thought it was going up in the first place and why if do you still think that that's what's going to drive silver higher my point is silver is not going to go higher for monetary reasons unless gold goes, does and it's not going to go higher unless there's a commodity boost and it's yeah. and it's and it's and a supply uh contraction contraction now you know i would add to that the downside risk is is pretty limited mm-hmm. i agree compared with that. to the upside um, only, but, asset know, that, that only asset that basically you can look at in the last 10 years is flat. Yeah, yeah. And, Since... it, really, and it really is not because demand has fallen off a cliff. It hasn't. Uh, it's not because it's less useful than it was before. It's not. It still is useful. So that's a good sign. I would agree. You can, buy, you can say silver is a good buy because it's undervalued. Absolutely. But not necessarily undervalued versus gold. You could say undervalued versus dollars, undervalued versus anything. I try yeah. to avoid the gold-silver link because I don't think there is one. Yeah. Unless yeah. unless gold goes higher, much higher. Yeah. Now, you bring up that Warren Buffett piece. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a, I don't know. It, it, was, it was funny that he was, so, so you're talking about uh, 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 bears coming out of the woodwork uh, regarding the stock market when it has a down day. And and it was kind of the opposite of that with with Warren Buffett here in some ways where where his uh, Berkshire Hathaway comes out they report uh, some really bad news that that some of their brands that they had bought uh, really aren't valued at what they expected them to be I think it was Heinz and some other ones and right. it was a really bad report and and he came out I I read that as I didn't read the whole thing but I saw it as a very defensive Warren Buffett like mm-hmm. trust me like I know we had a really terrible uh quarter very poor or- earnings or, or whatever but this is why you know you need to stay in here for the long run and and i saw it as you know he talks about gold versus stocks and, and you're right they're cyclical uh but but i think there's also bigger cycles at work here beyond just these individual credit cycles or commodity cycles or whatever and and i think you know warren buffett and a lot of other people in in his generation uh, as well as the baby boomers generation, are have kind of fallen into this trap of thinking that because things have been a certain way financially, uh, now they haven't completely, but they haven't changed a whole lot going back to to post World War II. This idea of of the, the American standard of living, this idea of social security, and, and the expansion of, of of retirement programs and and the social uh, security net or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's always been expanding or it's always been there for them. And they, they have this idea that it's always going to be the case. And, and maybe this is a bit of my, I don't know, millennial bias showing here. But but I think, you know, I, I look at somebody like my, my, my father, who's, who's 50, I would say 56 now. Uh, so coming up on retirement. And let's say he, he lives another 30 years uh, I, I have a hard time envisioning, you know, this current idea of, of pensions uh, and the current retirement programs, Social Security, etc., uh, lasting another 30 years. Uh, that that, that there's agree. a bigger cycle. That. And, and that's why you look at gold and silver. If, if your time horizon is 30 years, I would say you stick them in a safe deposit box wherever you're going to store it. Yeah, because... Uh, they're going to be solid assets. Uh, and the difference between real estate and gold and silver is you don't have to pay property tax on them, at least yet, <laughs> to, to have them. And uh, 
the way we see things today, we all say we can't see this going on. And that's what we said 10 years ago, but everything is unsustainable. The problem I have with the unsustainable view with everything is, you know, your life is unsustainable. Everything, of course, is unsustainable, whether it's the Roman Empire, which at one point was considered the most un the most sustainable thing. And then you had Augustine talking about city of God and realizing, and he was pretty prophetic there, he, he died amidst the collapse of the Roman Empire. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of things are unsustainable. The question is, do we really know when that point of unsustainability clicks in? Yeah. I, I don't profess to know it. A lot of people no. are out there predicting, professing to know it. Dollar collapse has been collapsing since 1971. You know, end of dollar hegemony. We heard that in 1985. It's still the top thing. Yeah, one day it won't be. But maybe it's not tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade. Who knows? Yeah. And, and, and I don't know. The interesting thing about it is that, you know, you or I, we can uh... – I don't know if I, I'm super if I'd be super graded over long term, but but we can we can look at these cycles and we can say okay this would be a good time to be in stocks or this is a good time to be in commodities or bonds or whatever, uh, and we can play it not like a day trader but but not treat it like I'm going to buy these stocks I'm going to hold them until ultimately I have to sell them past retirement or something like that, and yet you know most people the vast majority of the population uh, they don't pay attention to this they have their they have their day job. They have their life. This isn't interesting right. to them, et cetera. And, right. and, and, and the, I guess the problem with it is that most of them then give their money to somebody else to take care of it. And, and most of those individuals are, you know, there's minute differences, but they're all similarly minded, right? They Absolutely. all have the same general strategy that is predicated on the fact that this will go on forever yeah. same, at least for another five the, or ten same years with, same with the central banks they, they everyone has this vested interest that's what people don't get they have a vested interest in keeping the status quo because it's working for the majority of the people that are in charge not the majority of people in the world a lot of yeah. people are not doing well as a result of all this but the people that are in control it suits them right right i mean that's uh you know the whole idea of of the ultra wealthy profiting off of uh Poor Absolutely. economic times. I mean, it's, and, and this is, you know, we, we should wrap this up soon. <laughs> Maybe we've been going for over an hour. But but talking about uh, uh, things like liberalism and and uh, their, their solution to wealth inequality and whatnot and uh, taxes on the rich and, and whatever else, uh, even on the right to some extent, um, people failed to realize the role that central banks and their policies over the last 10 years have contributed to Absolutely. this wealth. Zero percent interest rates and, and QE, who benefits from it? Like there might not, be some not limited- Not the middle class saver, not the poor. No. Nope, just the rich who have assets and they go higher. Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, it, maybe maybe you'll get a lower interest rate on, on your mortgage or on your auto loan, or you can get one in the first place or something like that. Now you owe, now you owe money, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But 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 then you look at the the massive uh, uh, wealth that has been accumulated due to rising stock prices, stock buybacks, which are to some extent enabled by this uh, owns, rising real owns estate. Those? The most part, the most stocks are owned by the executives in the company and richer people. Poor people yeah. don't have stocks. Right, right. I mean, it's it, it, like the the whole wealth effect of stocks. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole middle class, lower class, even the upper middle class, they, they might benefit to some extent from it. But the ratio of their wealth that's contained within these uh, types of assets is, is 
pales in comparison to, to the ratio of, of the, you know, the ultra wealthy and whatnot. And, and, and yet it's, it's just something that's not, I don't know if it's, if it's a boring, if it's easier to just say, let's tax them. That's it, more interesting. It, it, it kind of gets at that, that, uh, I guess, deeper desire of some people of saying that's, that's unfair. Um, or if it's just too complicated to understand, you know, economics is, is not always a bright spot for many politicians, but it's a, it's a huge player of, I think that, that is just ignored by mostly the entire political system, unfortunately. Clearly. But anyways, is there anything you else wanted to talk about before we, uh, no, oh, I just want to up. thank you for having me on again, and I'll have to have you on the Small Gold uh, program pretty soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to uh, come on. And, of course, you can find Lewis over at his channel, Small Gold, with a, a space between the L and the G, I guess. I'll put a link in the description. Um, anyways, yeah, thanks for, for coming on. Thanks for the uh, the insightful discussion. You always have a, a great uh, kind of a contrarian viewpoint in a in a community of contrarians, and, and I think a lot of my viewers enjoy that. That's why we say small gold is the red pill for the red pilled. <laughs> there you go. Um, so head over to his site. Uh, I know he's also uh, got some great mugs over there as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, all right. All right. So let's wrap this up. I'll see you around. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thank you.